This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The Ontario Liberal Party voting on an interim leader. Uh, so far, it looks like MPP John Fraser is uh, the favorite. He's been endorsed by caucus. I guess there will be a vote within 24 hours. Let's bring in Peter Graff, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time as always. We appreciate it. My pleasure. So uh, what happens now as far as the process and the formalities? Uh, the caucus has decided on John Fraser. What happens now? Uh, well, I think inside the Liberal Party they have a process where then this is taken to uh, the uh, executives and the presidents of the riding associations who don't have uh, members in caucus to get it approved, but it's hard to imagine that there would be any uh, opposition at this point to what the, the caucus has put forward uh, for this uh, this sort of interim position. So, uh, obviously, some have said this has more to do with who isn't being appointed the leader than who is. Uh, What does that say? Well, I think it says uh, that any of the other five, other than himself and uh, Kathleen Wynne, who obviously isn't going to be running for leader, uh, may be caressing leadership ambitions. And so to be the interim leader is usually a signal that one is willing to forego a run for the the actual leadership. And so we might be seeing in people like Mitzi Hunter or uh, Michael Cotto or Natalie de Rosier uh, a, a desire to think about putting together a leadership bid uh, for the leadership of the Liberal Party. How does the size of the party now change all of this? Well, I mean, the party has the same number of members it probably had three weeks ago. What right. it doesn't have is, uh, you know, many members of caucus. Mm. And so. Yeah, I mean, in a way, most of the people who might be thinking of leader uh, would be thinking of it as maybe at least two elections before they might hope to become premier, which is certainly a lot of, uh, you know, rubber chicken around the province that want to feed for the next eight years. Uh, On the other hand, uh, they may be looking at what Justin Trudeau was able to do federally after the Liberals were uh, reduced to a third-party status under Michael Ignatieff with actually a, a share of the vote, which is, you know, wasn't that uh, different from the one they received provincially, and, and thinking they might have a chance to come back in four years' time. So that, that may be also part of the appeal. I mean, there's certainly a base of members in the Liberal Party, uh, probably a capacity to raise money that continues to be greater than that for the Ontario New Democratic Party. And so I think that probably gives them a sense that they might have a, a shot at uh, at uh, becoming premier in, say, four years' time. Again, I mean, people aren't seriously writing this party off, are they? I mean, you know, uh, many have said the best thing that can happen to any political party is be forced into third-party status, because usually they come back stronger than ever. Um, is, is money the big issue at this point? Uh, well... Probably not at this exact point. Uh, I mean, I presume that uh, one of the things that Doug Ford will likely uh, try to do to find an efficiency is to uh, get rid of the per-vote subsidy that was brought in, what, two years ago as part of the ban on corporate and union donations to parties. When that happens, I mean, it certainly will make it harder for uh, the parties and their fundraising. They'll have to find their money entirely uh, from members. But I mean, it seems like there's a pretty strong uh, fundraising base for the Liberal Party in Ontario. So I suspect they'll have the money to put together a reasonable campaign next time. I think the harder thing for the Liberals uh, looking to the next election is, you know, will they be able to find credible candidates? I mean, it's a challenge for a third party to find people who are willing to put their name forward to run. Uh, you know, we certainly saw that with the NDP campaign in this last provincial election with a number of candidates and what were thought to be no-hoper ridings. Uh, who you know then became a potential hopers, and uh, their colored uh, pasts and storied pasts came out 
uh, to haunt them. So, I mean, that's a challenge, I suspect, for the Liberals going forward. I mean, the bigger thing, I guess, is simply to be remain part of the media story in the next four years, uh, given that they won't uh, have recognized status in the uh, legislature and so will be less present in the ongoing debates of the Ontario legislature. Where is this party now? They had their last official meeting earlier on in this week. What do you think the headspace is inside this party? Uh, I think they still haven't figured out what happened. <laughs> Where yeah. to go next? I mean, you, you, you don't think they, they understand why they lost yet? Many have had that discussion, yeah. Well, um, they may have a pretty good idea of why they lost, but how you then uh, win again is mm. not always just the opposite of how you lost. And so what's the next step in terms of rebuilding that party? I think the first one is to say, well, who's going to lead us because Kathleen Wynne has stepped down? You know, the next one is how's the strategy to rebuild? And so, I mean, they will have to ask themselves, is a point to try and find and win that first by-election that comes along so that they can go up to eight seats and have greater recognition? Uh, is it to try and uh, regain uh, the support and interest of their members and have that energy to help them rebuild? Or is it more about, uh, you know, a rethink to say, well, wait a second, we lost a whole lot of seats to the Conservatives in this last election. Did that have something to do with the fact that we spent all our time trying to steamroll the NDP the past four years rather than making a case for, you know, why, I mean, you know, if you look what they did to control costs in the healthcare system, I mean, they paid a price in terms of people thinking that the hospitals were overcrowded. On the other hand, you know, we haven't heard for the past five years about how the health budget is eating the entire provincial budget because, in, in fact, they'd succeeded in that. That might have sold for them against, uh, you know, for, for the Conservative voters, but they never developed those kinds of thematics. So where did they go wrong? This was a party that came in uh, with gangbusters and, and, a, and a, a large majority way back when. When did it go south? Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to know what the exact date was. Uh, I mean, I think there was a few things that they uh, they stopped doing that probably uh, hurt them uh, in terms of their, their messaging. But I mean, I think an important part of it is that since 2008, 2009 and the, the financial crisis, it's a party that has been uh, quite steadfastly concerned about how did you bring the uh, provincial budget back into balance. Um, and then the result of that was that uh, people began to see things like uh, health care, uh, you know, waiting rooms getting crowded. They began to see uh, schools having their, you know, maintenance deferred and uh, not, uh, you know, being as well maintained as they used to be. And I think that, you know, cost them in terms of not really having a forward-looking message because they were really about trying to balance the budget. And then, of course, at the last minute, they said, well, that doesn't matter anymore. We're going to run a deficit this mm. year. So, I mean, you know, things like that, I think, had a significant impact in addition to having been in place for 15 years. And uh, as a result, uh, I mean, even the last election and perhaps even the one before were elections where there might have been a change. There was a certain appetite for change, but uh, the conservative alternative wasn't seen as uh, acceptable enough in those moments. Um, but, you know, that tiredness with the Liberals, I think, got compounded. And then with a certain leadership style that maybe was seen as sort of too self-congratulatory, uh, insufficiently team-based, hmm. um, or an inability to really explain uh, why certain things that were unpopular might nevertheless be, you know, useful or interesting. Uh, I mean, for instance, on the hydrofile, never really coming to a strong and uh, regular story about why prices were as they were 
mm-hmm. and how they reflected certain choices that might be useful. I, I think that all came together for, for this government. Where do they go now? Because many have said they just kept moving farther and farther to the left, obviously trying to take away the NDP's game. Uh, where do they go now? I mean, because this is a great opportunity for the NDP to take over that position. So does that force them back to the center? Well, I think a lot's going to depend on, first of all, how uh, Doug Ford decides to govern. Um, I mean, if if Doug Ford decides to really push you know, efficiencies to the point of significant cutbacks, it's a very different kind of politics that we're going to have than uh, if he runs a more... Patrick Brown centrist uh, government. So, I mean, we we don't know yet exactly how he's going to govern. Uh, And so depending on that and then depending on how the NDP runs as an opposition, uh, you know, there's different possibilities for the Liberals. I presume that the, you know, the uh, Horvath NDP is going to try and think about how they could be a government in waiting. And uh, presumably, uh, you know, as, as Doug Ford upsets some traditional NDP constituencies, the NDP is likely to be not willing to run as kind of an outraged campaign as it would have in the past, now that they're in the official opposition, that may open some space for the Liberals to try and pick up support, for instance, you know, within the union movement, uh, and to run to the left of the NDP. On the other hand, if, you know, the NDP's approach is to be really, to take people being riled up about the the Ford government and uh, be quite loud and vocal about it, that probably opens a space for the Liberals to cast themselves sort of as uh, the Paul Martin party, uh, you know, a party that's concerned about balancing the budget and can probably be quite critical of some of Ford's uh, fiscal decisions. So I think it really depends on where the, the other parties go in terms of where there might be space for them. What happens if the PCs follow Patrick Brown's lead and go further to the center? Where does that leave everyone? Well, I think that's probably the worst scenario for the Liberals because it then allows for a pretty uh, close debate between uh, the Conservatives and the NDP as you know the government and the official opposition uh, it allows the NDP to stake out a position, uh, you know, to the to the left of the Conservatives, but not necessarily that far to the left. And so there's not a lot of sort of space in politics for them. So I think that would be the hardest position for the Liberals uh, to find their space in, in the political debate. Uh, it's, you know, it's hard to know exactly what themes they could use that would really differentiate themselves in that kind of situation. I mean, their best appeal would really be that they would have the better chance than the NDP in being elected, uh, in the areas in Toronto where they lost this past time, but where they had success in 2011 and 2014. Uh, do Liberals realize why the PCs got elected this time? Uh, I'm sure some do. You know, because again, lots will say, well, you know, it was just 15 years, it was change, and, and you know, I don't know. People don't pick change just for the sake of change. Most people like things to remain the same. Something has to really ruffle the, their feathers and 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 do so on a consistent basis where they will say, okay, we need a change. Yeah, although, I mean, the change, uh, you know, you look at uh, Doug, Doug Ford, who gets elected with 40% of the uh, votes in the province, sort of, up about 4% from the disastrous Tim Hudak campaign. So, I mean, the, the move in terms of the, the Conservatives is not really that huge in this election. And, you know, you know compared to, say, 45% of the vote that uh, Mike Harris received in 1995 or the 46% Dalton McGuinty got in 2003. So, I mean, there was a move uh, there. I mean, I mean, I think for the Liberal Party, uh, yeah, they do have to ask the, sort of some 
self-reassuring things that they say, say to themselves that are probably not very helpful in thinking about what went wrong. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I think there are probably lessons they can learn about, you know, particularly their difficulty of bridging uh, a particular downtown Toronto base to the party leadership and its way of thinking and talking, and uh, a province that, you know, isn't downtown Toronto, even, you know, by the time you get into places like Brampton and Scarborough, uh, the way people think and talk is different, and I think the the party elite uh, in the Liberal Party was really out of touch with those changes. Uh, in regard to pa- uh, party status for the Liberals, uh, surprise, somebody hasn't thrown them a bone and offered them, um, you know, a way out of this, or is that just politics? Yeah, I think that's just politics. Uh, I mean, uh, obviously, in 2007, was it, when the NDP was a, no, I guess it was 2003, when the NDP was a seat short, uh, you know, there was a motions and moaning and groaning and uh, couldn't you can you lend us a dime uh, Dalton McGinty and the Liberals had no interest in doing that so certainly uh, I suspect you know the other parties paid attention to that at that moment the sort of hardball quality Uh, having said that I'm sure the Liberals have some strategies I mean we saw already some discussions with Mike Schreiner and the Greens although Mike Schreiner quickly backed off from that when he saw that it might be politically damaging to him to find some kind of working uh, relationship in Parliament I presume that the the Liberals are also looking at uh, somewhat, you know, uh, I don't know, unhappy backbenchers, people who think they should be cabinet ministers and don't get cabinet posts, uh, or uh, people in the NDP caucus who, you know, were sort of nobodies who got elected uh, based on the wave and trying to find a way if they can be sort of seduced and brought into the, the Liberal fold to give them aid. So I'm sure there's a number of strategies already at work to try and uh, deal with the being one seat short. I mean, the difficulty, I guess, for the Liberals is Kathleen Wynne is unlikely to be around that much longer, and that's a by-election they'll have to win or they'll, they'll go down two seats. Hmm. How? What does the NDP have to do to take advantage of this opportunity? Um, many will uh, say that, uh, on one hand, this is a, a great increase for them. Others will say, well, that's what happens when the Liberals cl- crash and burn and the unions go over to the NDP. Uh, how do they move beyond this just being a protest vote? How do they keep the Liberals down? Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose they'll be trying to learn from the Tom Mulcair uh, period of the federal party between 2011 and 2015. I mean, I think one of the, the big uh, things they would have to think about is how can they elect people in the 905, uh, particularly Mississauga, uh, Milton, Brampton, Scarborough, uh, even you know, a bit further out than that as well. I mean, they, those are areas where the NDP up to this election had been really, you know, a 5 to 10% proposition. Uh, they were able to, you know, move that up, but they ultimately had no organization to try and elect candidates in those, in those areas. And so I suspect if they were trying to learn something from the Tom Mulcair uh, period, it would be that uh, probably less attention has to be paid on being a high performer in question period and much more has to be paid on actually building uh, a party capacity uh, to fight elections. Hmm. So I think that would be a, a big uh, big one for them. Peter Grape has been with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. 
with the, uh, or sorry, the Senate has made amendments to Bill C-45. That is the cannabis legislation bill. The federal government has issued a response saying they in- intend to keep most of the changes, but some substantive changes did not make the cut. To talk more about all of this, Dan Malik is with his health sciences professor, Brock University, author of Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation of Pub- uh, Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition Ontario, and is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, Scott, no worries. So uh, what happened yesterday? What did the feds accept from the Senate? What didn't they? Oh, well, um, they accepted most of the amendments. I don't have all of the the details right in front of me. Um, But um, what they did reject are a few key ones, one of which we spoke about last week around um, sort of transparency and ownership of cannabis companies. Um, The one that seems to really be getting a lot of attention, um, well, there are two. One is about sort of branded swag, <laughs> for right. lack of a better term. Um, things like, you know, phone covers and T-shirts and stuff with, with cannabis company names on them. And the other one is around um, 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 the, the right to, uh, the, the, the requirement that people should be allowed to, um, to grow their own at home, up to four plants. Uh, Senate said provinces should be allowed to prohibit that if they want. And the um, the um, commons said, um, and, well, the government said, uh, no, they, they can, provinces can regulate that, but they cannot outright prohibit home uh, cultivation. Let me ask you something, Dan. Comparing mm-hmm. with the alcohol laws to what are becoming the cannabis mm-hmm. laws in this country, is one more lax than the other? Is um, Can you compare the two? Um, the alcohol laws versus the cannabis laws. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you're, for uh, example, you're talking about uh, ownership of companies. So I mm-hmm. guess the Senate wanted to know who is investing in these or, or who actually owned these companies. Um, yeah. So, what's yeah, the reasoning so they, behind that? The reasoning um, is that the, um, well, really the argument is, you know, one of the, the things this legislation should be doing is getting uh, drug sales out of the hands of um of organized crime, and you can't do that if you don't know who are the owners of these companies, right? Did this um, happen during Prohibition? Like, how did Mr. Molson and Mr. Labatt get to where they are? Uh, well, they, no, it didn't. And, uh, I mean, people were pretty clear on who was on, who owned companies with people's names, like, well, except for Seagram's, which was owned by... Anyway, uh, it's... Um, no, it, it, that wasn't an issue, uh, from what I can remember, but they also didn't have things like offshore sort of tax havens and stuff like that and and so it wasn't as uh there wasn't as much complexity in in the system right in the business so is wanting to know who's owning these companies is that a valid is that a valid concern i guess i mean in some ways it seems more i mean there are you know it's very easy and this was mentioned by some of the senators during the debates you know um any company can have, you know, any company not just related to cannabis can be, um, have an element of, you know, organized crime involved in it because of shareholding and things like that. Um, but, but the, the issue with cannabis is that because it's such a hot button around organized crime, right. um, around, you know, the black market being controlled by so-called criminal gangs and stuff like that, which there's been some evidence that it's not as big a component of it as, um, cannabis is not as big a component of it as, as some other 
um, aspects of illegal drugs. Um, but because it is such the optics around it, right, the way people perceive it, and because one of the things the government said right from, you know, the Liberals said before they were in power was, you know, we need to get this out of the hands of organized crime. Um, it is a major sort of priority for the government, um, whereas, say, the thing around um, home cultivation may not have been a priority for the government, but in their consultations, they're arguing that the consultations and the experts have said, you know, you have to allow some kind of home cultivation. Um, so, so there's those two things. One is sort of electoral promises and the politics around cannabis, and the other one is the sort of pragmatics around who's going to be able to access this stuff. Uh, I guess my point earlier in regard to uh, the feds was now with alcohol, obviously there's there's federal control, but the provinces pretty much, you know, there's lots of there's different distribution, different models depending on the province. I guess we're still going to see that with distribution from province to province with cannabis. Uh, But did government does government have more control over cannabis when it's being introduced than it did when alcohol was? Yeah, this is something that I think will end up being decided by the courts. I mean, when when, when the, the provinces and the federal government back in the 1800s were duking it out in the courts about who had jurisdiction, it was a really fuzzy area. And it turned out that uh, through some very complicated turns of um, reading of the laws, um, that the provinces gradually got more power than the original um, writers of the Constitution had, had hoped. Um, they wanted a stronger federal um, government. Um, but, but it really did require, you know, uh, court cases to go to the Supreme Court and then the Privy Council and to be sort of worked out. But, when it, but, but part of the challenge there was within the Constitution, it did mention things around licensing taverns and stuff like that. We've got nothing like that around cannabis, but there is this distribution around um, commerce and trade being a federal thing, but licensing being a provincial thing. And that's why I think we have the di- – it, it makes sense as well, but we have the, the legal distinction around um, the sale of cannabis like the sale of liquor being a provincial um, responsibility. However, one of the interesting things um, about this issue of home cultivation that I've, note, that I've noted already, not, not today, but is that when the Minister of Health, um, Petty Pass Taylor, said, you know, uh, we need, you know, Canadians may be able to um, cultivate, the, the Canadians can cultivate their own beer and wine, or can make their own beer and wine as well, right? So, of course, they should be allowed to right. um, um, grow cannabis. She didn't mention that that beer and wine home brewing home fermenting is a provincially regulated thing Ah. right so the provinces i think can actually ban it it would be stupid to do it but they could do it right so this is kind of where the 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 provinces what what this the senate wanted was for the provinces to be able to say no because quebec and i think manitoba and i think nunavut right now prohibit home cultivation or want to prohibit home cultivation. Yeah, I guess Quebec and Manitoba are now um, at odds with this. So um, is is the growing issue that big an issue? I mean, uh, I don't know. Is is it like growing tomatoes? Is it that easy? Does it take, you know, like people say, well, we can, you know, make our own wine. Well, that's quite a process. It's not like it's not like you're growing tomatoes. Yes. Um, the, the, The growing issue I think the growing issue is an issue because of the um, fear of grow-ups, right? Uh, so we have these right. ideas that, you know, someone 
buys a house, they clear it out, they fill it with um, pot plants and the humidity and the, the electrical drain and all that stuff, destroys the inside of the house, black mold, all that stuff, right? Well, you're not going to get that with three plants. Um, but, but there's that perception, and we talked a while about, ago about the, the real estate board saying, you know, you need right. to have more controls over these things. But yeah, so growing, it's, I, my understanding is it's not the same as growing tomatoes because there's different aspects of the growing process that will create different levels of THC and, and, and other um, components. But it is, um, four plants is not going to destroy the inside of a house. Right. You know, and and again, I, I'm looking at it to people that make their own wine and brew their own beer. Yeah. There's there's some people that are, that do it and find it as yep. a hobby and, and so on and so forth. But that, it's not for everybody. No one's got the time yeah. to do that sort of thing. Yeah, you're right. And and so some people will, some people won't. Growing plants is, I mean, a lot of people grow right now. I think part of this is, again, to cut the illegality by not right. making it illegal, right? It's, right. It's, if it's not illegal to grow a few pot plants, then you won't. I mean... I don't think you can yield so much from four plants that you're going to be able to create your own um, distribution system, right? Just like someone who does a five-gallon carboy of beer could give it to some of their friends if they're sitting around, but yeah. they're not going to be. They're not selling it out of the front. They're not selling it out of a white van. That's right. Um, what about, we talked about branding and, and regulations around mm -hmm. that. Obviously, one of the companies, I can't remember which one, has brought Snoop Dogg into this. And then, of course, the government announced that you can't use any sort of branding like that on packages. That doesn't mean you can't use it, I guess, on swag, shirts, hats, whatever it is that you want in that respect. Are you surprised sure. at that considering they don't want that on the product itself? Because um, if it's surprised. if it's not, if it's not if we're not going to see Snoop Dogg's face on a product, my guess is you're uh, going to see it on a lot of T-shirts. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, there, there's two things. One is we are in an era of a push for um, plain packaging and cigarettes, right? So there is a mindset around certain types of things should have as little advertising around them as possible. This isn't that's not swag. That's actual packaging, but it can easily leak into the swag thing. Yeah. You don't see a lot of cigarette t-shirts, tobacco company yeah. t-shirts either, right? Um, so there's that kind of element. And the other one for me, um, looking at it from the end of Prohibition, is that there were incredible controls over the way alcohol was advertised after Prohibition. And it was a gradual chipping away and a manipulation kind of of the rules and a lot of sort of looking the other way on government's part that opened it up. Uh, so this kind of control is not un you know, is, is not unique. We've seen it before with other um, substances that are considered problematic. Um, the question comes down into, well, if they're a legitimate company, shouldn't they be able to advertise themselves? Mm. Um, and then the response is, well, they're a legitimate company, they're a licensed, regulated company, and maybe some things shouldn't be advertised uh, so clearly. Um, and that's the, the rationale behind it. I'm not giving my opinion one way or another because I frankly don't care but um i i think this is where it comes down is people saying on one side if we're going to license this company why can't we let them do the sorts of things that other legal companies do mm. and others saying well it's not just an everyday product that's why we have a massive bill and all of these different um, elements within it to control access and distribution and stuff like that uh, we've talked about this before in different mm -hmm. uh forms but how is this going to change the alcohol business? Because, you know, I can see, well, I don't, I'm sure it won't take very long once it goes legally on sale. They're going to say, well, wait a sec here. What about us here? What about this? What about that? Are we yeah. going to see that, do you think? 
I think uh, eventually. I think once, uh, we especially a, around tax. Well, yeah, yeah, around around tax, but also I think around just controls, right? Because right now, I don't think alcohol really, like the alcohol industry, really want to associate themselves in any way with cannabis as a, yeah. a similar type of product because the associations are still relatively negative. But once you see. Once it, if, if it does get to the point where it's just a, another recreational substance you consume, um, there may be questions around the types of controls on one substance and not the other, um, and then the type of taxes as well. Um, but it would be, yeah, and, and I think that's where I would stop as far as predictions go. But yeah, you've got a highly excised taxed uh, com- um, business of, of alcohol and one that people are saying, and I think for good reason, you can't overtax because you will undermine the black market. It could be that this maybe spurs a new alcohol black market. I don't think so. Um, but uh, there, you know, it's not that there's no black market in it. But um, it, it it is kind of an interesting thing around the taxes, but also around the perception and images and regulation and types of controls put on products. It may be more that the cannabis people will be saying, hey, why can't why do they get to do that and we don't like why does alcohol get the, you know to have swag and all that stuff but we don't and i think that's we'll see that shake down in the next few years what about when it comes to other cannabis products uh whether it's edibles or i've even mm-hmm. seen a thing on drinks what's going to happen yeah. if all of a sudden there's a cannabis drink how is how are alcohol producers going to going to feel about that yeah because that's almost question. like it's infringing in their territory yeah, and I think that that, I mean, we're a few years out from edibles, I think, um, yet. I, I think that the law started, it's starting, it's, it's definitely not, there's no alcohol and, and um, cannabis um, beverages allowed, but there could be other kinds of cannabis beverages. Oh, you mean beverage. like the mixture of alcohol and, yeah. uh, wow, there you go, yeah. there's your energy drink. Think of the names, <laughs> beer and a buzz. So, yeah, that's some kind of energy, so yeah. you know, I mean, I, you know, I wasn't necessarily referring to no. alcohol-infused cannabis drinks, right. although, although there you go, I, I mean, you might want to patent that now. No, um, what, what, I mean, just even talking about cannabis drinks, isn't that, in yeah. a sense, competing with alcohol, even though it's not alcohol? No, I, I think you're right. And, and the way you have, you know, the way we consume things is different depending on the, the, I mean, where and how we consume things is different depending on the medium, right? Whether you're smoking it, drinking it, eating it, it you might do it in different environments. So sitting around having a drink with your friends, some of those friends might be having, you know, Red Bull and vodka, which is not recommended. And some of them might be having some kind of hemp drink. And then some might be having a beer or whatever. Right? There you go um, back to the. You, can you yeah. serve? Because we all we always talk about you got to keep hemp and uh, and alcohol separate. Can you be serving uh, a cannabis based drink or juice or whatever it is next to someone who's having a beer? Well, I don't think in um, public a uh, publicly licensed place you can. But if you're sitting at home, you know it's it's not as regulated. Right, right. That's, that's the, the sense I was. It's not regulated at all at my house. <laughs> Nothing's regulated at your house, you but I understand announce. what you're saying, Dad. You don't no. want to announce that on the radio. No, well, I wasn't announced that. You were saying that it's not as regulated <laughs> yeah. as much as it is at your house. Well, That's people's right. houses aren't regulated. Yeah. That was the point. I didn't mean mine specifically, Dan, but thank you yeah. for that clarification. It, it is, it, it's anarchy at the, uh, at the homestead, eh? <laughs> That's it. It's just all it. hell's breaking loose. Yeah. So, uh, so there's a lot of unchartered territory here. Yes. 
Absolutely. I mean, especially when you're talking about other products like this, because yeah. again, you know, once you start bringing drinks into the mix, as as well as the other edibles that's out there, mm-hmm. um, I, I can see this being quite a discussion. Yeah, absolutely. And the the interesting thing about the market is the market usually bends to demand, right? And the market finds a way. So. What we usually see, this happened in 1928, the year after Prohibition ended, and this happened in uh, 1877, the year after uh, a sort of a centralized licensing system was created, was there was a massive bill um, passed to fix some of the problems that were found only after um, the law became active. Can we learn anything from those days? Can you see anything in your studies of prohibition that we may be making the same mistakes or or correcting them as we go? Um, Not anything in specific. What I I usually say is, you know, there will always be tweaks um, because there are things that people just cannot predict. And in some ways, it's the fact that the the law um, writers the people who draft the law and discuss the law are not necessarily the same people who are going to be consuming the product, mm-hmm. right? Um, they're not necessarily going to hear everything they want to hear or they need to hear from um, sort of people who give evidence in, in commissions or in inquiries and stuff like that. Because when you go to an inquiry or a commission, you may not be not telling the truth, but the whole truth, mm-hmm. right? Because there may be some things you don't want to admit. So um, that's kind of a general statement that um, about how policy is formed and then needs to be tweaked. And, um, and often what we've seen with the lick, what I've seen with the liquor um, issue, especially after prohibition was there were general laws, but there weren't a lot of specifics. Mm. And what's different in this cannabis law is they seem to want a lot of precise specific um, things embedded in the law, which um, might make the lawmakers and the public more comfortable knowing, you know, what the restrictions are for plants or whatever. But it may not work on the ground, right? It might mm, be. Yeah. Not in the plant thing, but in other things, yep. there needs to be more flexibility on the ground. Dan Malik has been with us, health sciences professor, Brock University. Dan, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, Scott, my pleasure. Thanks. Take Cheers. care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Soccer fans, football fans still rejoicing over the fact that uh, the United bid between Mexico, United States, and Canada. But they're saying Canada, Mexico, and the United States. I'm sure it's an alphabetical thing. Uh, of course, have, uh, have won the bid for the 2026 World Cup. What will the economic impact be? We have always talk about how much these events cost. Does it balance out? The pros outweigh the cons. Let's bring in Julie Stevens, Associate Professor of Sports Management and Director of the Center for Sport Capacity, Brock University, and with us now. Julie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, Scott. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks. So we often hear a lot about how much these events can cost, and sometimes they don't generate that kind of revenue. We don't get it back. How do you gauge this scenario, especially with a United bid like this? It's an interesting one. I think it's something FIFA's had to consider because the cost of the event is just becoming too much for one nation to host, unless, of course, you're a Russia or a China with bottomless pits of money uh, that the government controls. So what does that mean moving forward? I mean, is this the new future of FIFA or even the Olympics, for that matter? It may be the new feature because... Uh, you know, extraordinary times of cost 
require a new model of these games. So if you look at the bid, the triple country bid, it suggests that $5 billion in economic impact will come out of it. But of course, that's across three countries, of which Canada is having 10 out of 80 games. So that's about 12.5% of the competition. So if you just go off that percentage, Canada might stand for about $625 million out of the $5 billion for economic impact in the country. And that's across 10 games and, right now, three different cities. What about the costs? Would they be shared the same way? Hard to know how the funding would work, because when you host these major games, there's federal government money that goes towards the event, and then there can also be money from provincial governments, and they might contribute a little bit differently. If you look at a cost, say, like security, which was massive when we hosted the Vancouver Olympics in 2010, there's local police forces in each of the cities that might have varying costs depending on the scale of visitors and so on. And then you have broader, you know, Canadian Border Security Agency services that would be more of a shared cost. Uh, Is cost the only reason for doing a United bid like this? In my opinion, uh, I think it's the way to handle what FIFA expects. But from a country like ours, Canada, where maybe we can't handle all 80 games, partnering with another nation is an in to get us a little bit of the action, a little bit of the international profile at a smaller percentage of the cost. So I don't think cost is the only reason. There's other uh, less tangible but profile and... uh, world knowledge about Canada that's valuable. And I'm guessing the for FIFA, the ability to market this, uh, you know, North American-wide, or as opposed to, well, continent-wide, as, as opposed to um, just in one city or one part of the world, which will jump over it and, and the rest ignore. Now everyone's on board. Yeah, perhaps. Like, certainly for FIFA, uh, the attraction of the stability of uh, Canada, United States, Mexico... North American bid from a geopolitical standpoint is a bit of refreshing for the organization. They're going into Russia now and see how that'll work out this summer. The other part to it is it's hard to know what the attraction will be for the global fan. We know FIFA has a global following. Fans from all different countries go to watch the World Cup. Is being spread out so far mm. difficult for fans to decide, okay, am I going to go to Toronto or am I going to go to Seattle, right, to watch games? And, you know, again, how will they market each? How will they spread that cost if some games are more valuable than others? Exactly, and I'm sure just getting the bid together across three countries, Mm. three national soccer federations was tricky enough. Now that they've won the bid, that's probably the next item on the discussion table. Uh, is this a real advantage for FIFA in the sense that they've sort of, you know, blown everything here and they, they've covered the whole, the whole, the whole shebang in one swoop, as opposed to, you know, one year doing this, one year doing that, no matter if it comes back. I guess it could always come back and forth to three different areas within those three countries. I mean, there's no reason why this couldn't be done again, I guess, in, in different areas. Is that how they're looking at this? I'm not sure what they, what they have planned, but if we turn to the International Olympic Committee... They're going back to China for winter games, having been there not so long ago for summer games. And it just may be the new reality for these international multi-sport events. 
So what's the advantage for someone like a Canada getting 10 of these games but not the whole shebang? Um, are, 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 you know, and many people talked about the Pan Am games, specifically here in Hamilton, that although it was, a, it was a Toronto bid, that Hamilton got to participate. But many still felt that the majority of the events went, went there and that people were pretty much in and out of this city and back to that one. Um, where's the advantage, and, and you said even with fans in proximity to certain venues, they're either going to one country or, or, or another. Um, do you see this working uh, successfully? I mean, it seems to create a lot of problems as well. I think it has great potential for a few areas in terms of Canada. Let's just look at the Canadian Soccer Association and the men's national team. Now, it's still under discussion if all three countries will get an automatic berth for their men's team into the competition, but it is expanding a greater number of teams coming to the World Cup in 2026. So let's just assume that Canada is given an automatic berth. So now we're in 2018, eight years out. The National Soccer Federation can really invest in its men's national team program with certainty that they will be at that World Cup. So we could hope to see improvement in our men's national team on the international scene even sooner than 2026 when you know you have a certain uh, outcome ahead of you and you can plan accordingly. The other piece for Canada is kind of the feel-good effect. Yes, most of the events for Pan Am might have been in more of the Toronto hub Mm -hmm. versus in Hamilton, but there is a feel-good effect that many economists, say is the impact of an event they try and monetize what it is it's a little tough to put dollars and cents on it but from um, a Canadian profile international perception international profile it's certainly helpful think of the kinds of times we're in today and reasons why a country might be on the global map this would be a good reason and And you know the last one is about the economic impact and trying to see what it might bring to each of the cities uh, either way, good marketability for Canada, isn't it? Yes, I believe so. And we do well when we host events. We had Pan Ams in 2015, the Invictus Games last year. Just over 10 years ago, hard to believe it was that long ago, we had the FIFA Under-20 World Cup. Mm. So we have a, a really great track record, and of course the Olympics in 2010. So. We do major games well in this country. Julie Stevens has been with us, Associate Professor of Sport Management and Director of the Center for Sport Capacity, Brock University. Julie, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. No, no problem. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.